I love that imagery of an anchor. And I'm not a fisherman, and I love that imagery. Went fishing one time with my brother up there in Wisconsin. We were at a place that the water was just turning like I thought we were going to capsize. He had three anchors. We didn't budge a, an inch. We were just locked right in. And we're to be anchored in this. Can anybody say amen to that? We're to be anchored in this right here, and this reveals the very one that we're going to look at again this morning in this great Gospel of John. By the way, our two guests that are coming at the beginning of next month, and that's not very far away, they're both going to be in the Gospel of John likewise. So we're going to be in this Gospel for a while. This is the seventh sign miracle of those that John has selected, but we're not going to be done with John 11 and continue in this, in this great good news, gospel good news. Now, you know that one of the great themes of the gospel of John is that it often is called the gospel of belief. And it's called the gospel of belief because you see it 90 times, this call to believe, and when we get to the end of the Gospel of John, you remember that John says, this is my whole purpose as the Spirit of God guided me to give you this Gospel, that there are many other signs which Jesus did, but these have been selected for you in order that you might, everybody say it, you might believe, and that believing in Christ, that you might have life and you might have life eternal. There it is. That's a great place to encourage somebody who hasn't been in the Bible or hasn't been in the Bible for a while, get back in the Gospel of John and look at the Lord Jesus Christ and this preeminent theme of belief. Now, it's not the only theme of the Gospel. Um, another theme of the Gospel of John is that of, well, they've been mentioned with some of these miracles likewise, and that is that John is likewise emphasizing this idea that Jesus is light. I am the light of the world. In fact, if you turn back just a couple of chapters to uh, chapter 8. Chapter 8, yes, there it is. Verse 12, because I want to call your attention to another theme. 8.12, then Jesus again spoke to them saying, there it is, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me will not walk in darkness. Christ brings us, makes us into the realm of understanding and seeing and awakening us to the truth of who he is from darkness into light, right? And then also he says, but we'll have the light of, what's the last word in the verse? The light of life. And there's another theme, major theme in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of belief, the theme of of light and the theme, all these expressing this great truth of, of regeneration and the theme of life. And when we get to John chapter 11, that's the focus here. And we know the verses, don't we? In verse 25 of chapter 11, get back to our major chapter, okay? Verse 25, you know it. He said, I am the resurrection and the, and the life. And we see his, his power, his omnipotence to prove his claim by what he does in raising Lazarus from the dead and giving evidence that not only can he make these claims, but his works reveal 
that his words are true based upon, upon what, he, what he does. Now, we looked at verses 1 through verse 16 last week, and we're reminded that not only is this, this purpose putting the light upon Jesus Christ, but it's to reveal his, to reveal his glory. This sickness of Lazarus, Jesus says, there's a major thing that's going on here that you might see the glory of God and that God, his glory, might be seen in the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, chapter 11, you remember? When Jesus heard this, this news of Lazarus, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified, may be magnified, may he be seen as God and God alone in what he's going to do in this, in this miracle. In fact, look at chapter 11, verse 40. It's repeated just before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and we won't even get there today, okay? We'll get there next week, Lord willing. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God in what Jesus is going to do and doing what nobody else can do, and that is raising Lazarus from the dead, displaying his divine nature as God in flesh. Now, a lot of the things you remember from last week, I trust that he was saying to the disciples they didn't get it. But they're going to get it later. They're like us. They come back, we understand more as we read more, and we assess more, and we understand more, and the Spirit helps us with that. But there was a lot they they didn't understand of what he was saying and why they were waiting. And then all of a sudden, okay, we're going. Why would we go? It's dangerous to go back to Judea. Don't you remember they tried to seize you in order to put you to death? And now we're going back there. And Jesus reminds them of who is in absolute and total control. In fact, that should get us right to where we're going to start this morning in verse 17. Look there with me. This is new territory now. And by the way, let me give you the outline of this section of verses 17 that, Lord willing, we'll get to verse 36 today. From 17 to 36. This is an incredible outline. It's excellent because it's not mine, okay? I borrowed it. And I noticed it was in more than one place in the section, so that's why I could say it's such a a great outline. We've got Jesus... Uh, his coming in verses 17 through verse 24. His coming to Bethany. And then in verses 25 through verse 27, we've got his claim. And then in verses 28 through 36, we see his compassion. Note the alliteration. Give me credit there, okay? His coming, but it's not mine. His claim... What a great claim, and he will prove it to be so. And then his compassion that we see in his relationship with the people that he is going to come and and minister to. Okay, back to verse verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been, that he, that is Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for four days. And you understand this morning when it says he found this or discovered this, he's in control of this. He has has deemed every second under control as to what he's planned for his glory to be revealed. But the text is reminding us the fact of waiting those certain days for now to come to this particular scene, which is a funeral. 
which is a sad scene. A sad scene. Grieving is going on. Four days in the tomb. Often this would go on more than one week in terms of the grief that's, that's taking place. Why the four days? R.C. Sproul has a good comment if we are able to read it this morning. I am on. And I am pressing. Ho! Oh, there we go. Okay. Good morning. We will start again. Oh, yeah, here we go. Look, look at this quote. Why four days? This is such a great quote by our dear, beloved friend who is in glory, R.C. Sproul. He says this. In fact, notice Christ's absolute control in all things and God getting glory. Here's a different quote. I'm sorry, I want to back up a bit. Don't read that yet. As to the glory of God and giving him glory. This is from the Expositor's uh, Commentary that is uh, one of the editors by Platt. Note, nothing happens by chance. Nothing is without purpose, whether sorrow, sickness, or death. Nothing happens to you that God does not permit for a reason. You will encounter no situation in life in which God cannot be glorified. It doesn't matter if it's an impossible boss, a loveless marriage, a crushing tuition bill, or a dysfunctional family. God can be glorified in every situation. You need to learn to ask, no matter the situation, how can I glorify God in this? Our normal response is to ask, what's the fastest way out of this situation? But Christian maturity is learning to look at a situation and knowing that whatever you face, you face it so God can be glorified through you. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether we eat or whether we drink, it's our goal to do all to the glory of God. Yeah, It's a great quote. Now, concerning this four days and all that's going on, I want you to listen to this statement by R.C. He says, the fact that Lazarus has been buried for four days may seem like an insignificant detail, but it helps us get at the reason for Jesus' delay in going to Bethany. Among the rabbinic teaching in Jesus' day was the idea that when a person died, that person's spirit hovered over the body for three days. And if somehow the body was resuscitated, the spirit returned to it. But according to the rabbinic tradition, the spirit departed after three days, and the body was beyond all hope of resuscitation at that point. In light of this teaching, it seems likely that Jesus wanted to get to Bethany after three days had passed so that once he had raised Lazarus from the grave, the Jewish authorities could not say Lazarus' spirit had been lingering and his body had merely been resuscitated. By delaying his return, Jesus let enough time pass to make it absolutely certain that raising of Lazarus was completely against nature and could not be seen as anything other than a miracle. There's no mistakes with, with our Lord. He knows exactly what he was doing and is doing in your life and my life even right now. 
Now, Dr. MacArthur has a good statement about this funeral circumstances that has taken place um, with this comment. It was customary to bury the deceased on the day of their death. Since the climate was warm, the Jews did not practice embalming. Men and women would walk separately in the funeral procession, after which the women alone would return from the burial site to begin the 30-day mourning period. The first seven days of mourning were the most intense, and many of the mourners would remain with the family for that entire week. That explains why the Jews, who came to console Martha and Mary, were still with them four days after the burial. Well, look with me at the text again, eleven seventeen. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So there's been four days of mourning going on. I also understand that if you had enough money, you could hire mourners to join in on this. You could even hire uh, instrument players to play while this was taking place. So it, it was a, a very sad experience of loss, grieving. And this reality, this scene of grief, is a result of the fall and sin, and sorrow, and suffering, and pain, and death. And there'll be grief. And grief is real to every human being. We all know it at one time or another. You have all known it, or will know it, even more so in your, in your life. And I want to remind you this morning that there are two kinds of grief. There's grief without hope. And grief without hope is a terrible scene. Because if there's grief and there's death and there's no hope, there's the question is, what's the purpose in all of this? And what's after? And so do you go to a funeral and there's no hope and there's no gospel and there's no understanding of anybody knowing the Lord. It is a sad scene, is it not? But the flip side of that is that there's grief with hope. And you know the passage, don't you? In 1 Thessalonians, the apostle Paul says, we grieve but not as those who have no what? Have no hope. And to grieve with hope is to grieve in what we know in light of what God has for us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's to get to the end of the story in John chapter 11. To grieve with hope is a grief with confidence and future expectation of what God promises and what's ahead for the believer. I love the way Psalm 30, verse 11 says, God will turn our mourning, and it's mourning as M-O-U-R-N, our sadness into gladness. Or as Revelation 21, 4 says, he will wash away every tear from our eyes. That's our expectation. People with hope grieve differently. Can I say that again this morning to you who profess Christ? People with hope grieve differently. They handle 
death differently because they see beyond it and they see what God has for us in trusting him and the future that he has for, for his people. Now that word, console them, in verse 19, Mary and Martha, all these people, notice, and it says, many of the Jews. So apparently a lot of people knew Lazarus, or a lot of people knew this, these two sisters, and so there's a crowd there. And I think, again, that's by divine intention. So many of the Jews who had come there, to console them. It's just a common word to speak kindness or to speak comfort to someone. And Zodiades points out that the, that the word here that is used, there's a synonym for this particular word in the New Testament language, and it's the word parakaleo. And I mentioned that this morning because from that synonym that he points out, we get the word paraclete. And the word paraclete over there later on in chapter 16 is that Jesus is talking about one in the noun form that is going to be your helper. He's going to be your comforter. And part of the comfort that we experience And the way that we handle grief is because we, in Christ, possess the Comforter. The God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1, who lives in us. And so when we grieve, we don't grieve without hope because of the Comforter living within us. And it comforts us through the promises that we have and the hope that we have in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see these gals have comfort, that kind of comfort, I believe, in their own life. But even though they have that hope, they still grieve. It's real. And then we have a a discussion between Martha and between Jesus. Notice in verse 20. He comes and these people are seeking to speak kind words and be there. And there's this mourning that's going on and grieving. And here comes Jesus in verse 20, says, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. So here's Martha. And when she arrives, she gets to to Christ before he's all the way there with everything that's going on. Verse 21 says, then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you understand that statement from Martha? If you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 22, 22, even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. Martha's disappointed, but her words are careful. Her heart is broken over the fact of her brother. But notice, it doesn't diminish her hope in Christ. If you'd been here, my brother would have not have died. I think that's the standard statement that was being heard over the last several days. Oh, if Jesus was only here, if Jesus had only come, we're going to see how Mary makes the very same statement. And yet she says, yet I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. It's not a rebuke by any means. It's a confident fact in the Savior, although she doesn't understand completely why he hadn't come earlier. But she conveys this 
this confidence in him. By the way, here's a wonderful interpretive paraphrase of her statement. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. It reads this way. Lord, we know that that had you been here, you would have healed Lazarus. But even now, Lord, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will do it. Even though Lazarus died, Jesus, even though my brothers died, Jesus, my confidence remains in you. And I know that you're in such harmony with God that this has to be of God. I wonder if you can think that way when things come into our lives that we, that we don't understand. Why, why wouldn't he have come earlier? We'd have thought you'd come earlier. And yet I know, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. There's a great reminder here, beloved. And notice, Jesus didn't do what, what Martha would have thought or desired, but that didn't diminish her confidence in him. And remember that nowhere in the Bible does God require you understand everything God is doing all of the time in your life. Now it merits that you think about it. Some of you gals, a week ago, you went through that how to handle trouble and asked the question, okay, what is God doing? How is he working in your life? Because he's always working. So it's a good question to ask. But the Bible doesn't demand that you completely understand everything that he's doing all of the time. How do I know that? Because we looked at Isaiah 55 last week and we were reminded his thoughts are not what? Our thoughts. And his thoughts and his ways are higher than our thoughts and our ways. But the Bible does demand that you trust him. Because he is worthy of it. Because he is the God we've been studying about in the first hour. And the fact that Martha will trust him will be rewarded with what she's going to see. It is always worth it and always right to trust God. There better be an amen with that. Amen? It's always the right thing to do. And may not see at all how it's working out on this side of glory. But it's still the right thing because he is God. Bend the knee to him and say with Martha, but I know that whatever you ask of God, whatever you do, God will give it to you. And Jesus says in verse 23, look at verse 23. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Jesus said, your brother will what? (laughs) Your brother's going to rise again. Did Mary grasp all that that statement involved? It doesn't appear in the next verse. But he conveys to her what's going to take place. And notice her response. Then Martha said to him, Well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. What does she know? You know, I think she knows. I think she knows the scriptures. I think she knows the scriptures. I think she knows what was generally taught and basically understood by all people, and that is, you're going to die and there's going to be a day of judgment. You're going to stand before him one day. There's going to be a resurrection unto. It's pointed unto man, wants to die, and after this, what? The judgment. And though the Sadducees at this time, first century, rejected the resurrection, like many people could do today or do do today, 
Yet the general fact is that she understood a general resurrection of the dead. So she says, I know that he will rise again. My brother Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection on that last day. And here's some scripture that I think, I think that she knew or understood. Remember Job's great statement in the book of Job. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I what? I will what? I'll see God whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another, my heart faints within me. The hope of seeing the very God to whom Job was trusting. Or how about Isaiah? Isaiah 26 says, Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Pretty obvious. Isaiah is saying there's going to be a resurrection. Or how about Daniel's statement? And Daniel says in 12.2 as he's summing up future events for us. He says, one day many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. I believe Martha knew those scriptures. And on the basis of Martha knowing those scriptures, I believe she could take confidence in what the Lord was going to do. Although I do not think she understood completely what was going to take place because she'd not seen that. But she believed Jesus was capable. Jesus was God in, in flesh. So that's all his relating to his coming. And then we have in verses 25 and 26 those words that you are familiar with and that is so much more than an Easter sermon so much more. His claim, 25 and through 27. And not only his claim, claim, but you will also notice that we'll have Martha's confession as a result of what Jesus will say here. And I just believe, verse 25 and 26, one of these great, greatest statements with a promise in the Scriptures given to us by Jesus in the context of this great sign miracle. I believe those verses in 25 and 26 are worth us reading together. So could we do that? I'll begin it with Jesus said to her, and then we'll read those verses out loud in worship to the glory of God together. Read them with me. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? What a claim. What a claim. Now the most important thing really of verse 25 and 26 is the first two words by Jesus. And it's easy to overlook them because of the content of the two verses. But what is significant, again, this is the the fifth time of the seven I am's in the scriptures is significant because when Jesus is saying, I am resurrection and life, he's claiming to be the same one in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush who answers Moses when Moses says, when I go to the people, who am I going to tell them you are? And what does he say? What does God say to Moses? I am that I am. The everlasting, all-sufficient, all-sustained, foreverlasting, self-existent 
God, Yahweh, who was and is and who will be. The one who was in the beginning as creator and forever. Forever is the great I am. So in John, we have I am the bread of life. Take and eat. I'm the light of the world, so you can see. I'm the door of the shepherd. I'm the way in to God's sheepfold. I am the good shepherd, and here I am resurrection and life. And then Jesus makes a claim here, which is two ways of saying a similar thing, but they're different. And I want you to see that. First of all, I want you to notice when he says at the beginning of verse 25, there are two definite articles. Is that significant? Yes, let me tell you why. He says, I am the resurrection. And in the Greek text, it's also another definite article. I am the life. I'm the life. I'm the resurrection. Why the definite article? Exclusive to him. That's the point. The Holy Spirit is emphasizing the wonder of Christ. It's focusing upon his person. It's not on what he possesses or what he does, though that's true, but upon the very nature as the God-man. We could say that Jesus is saying, I can resurrect the dead or I am able to give life, and those statements would be true, but that's not the point. It's not the focus. It's that he is saying everything about life is found where? In me. Everything about resurrection is found where? In him. Jesus Christ gives us life, but he is life. And so when we come to the scriptures and we say, ah, there's these great promises like in verse 25 and 26 that Jesus offers us. Okay, what are those promises anchored in? His person in terms of who he is as the very God man. So the first promise, we've got a, a, a first promise that he gives to us in verse 25 is about life after death. Stay with me. It's about life after death. But the second promise is similar, but it's different because now he's talking about life apart from death. How do you get that? Look at the text. I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in me will live even if he, what? Dies. There's physical death. But look at what he does in the second statement, which reinforces the first one, but it's different. Now he says, and everyone who is living, that's the participial form here, and everyone who is believing in me, what? Will never die. Now he's not talking about physical. Now he's talking about spiritual. And it reminds us of the fact that if you're in Christ, you have eternal life. Not when you die, you have it when? You have it right now. Nothing will change that. All, all that death is is a small bump in the road. By the way, when you go to the stores, don't you love those speed bumps? Amen? Right? But it doesn't change anything about where you're going. All, all death is is the doorway from one life to another life. So he's saying, if you're living and you're... How many people here this morning, because I'm concerned by your response. Raise your hand if you're living. Thank you. Those that didn't raise your hand, I want to see you in the prayer and counseling afterwards. Living and believing life forever, right now, 
Nothing can change that. Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? What a great truth. So you die, okay. The absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But you've got eternal life, present tense, right now. And will not cease, and one day you will be in his presence. But the real issue in verse 25 and 26 were the last words that we read, just like this morning in that first hour. question is, do you, do you believe this? I mean, do you, do you really believe it? Now, John deals with the fact, and we've talked about this, there's belief and there's belief, right? There's belief that says, oh, yeah, I, I believe that he did that. Are you going to follow him? No. No. When we had Doug Bookman here to be, spend some time in the miracles for us, this is quite, this is a few years ago, but one thing that I wrote down that has stuck with me, and I think it's worth conveying to you likewise, is that Bookman may, reminds us that in the Gospel of John, when John is talking about saving belief, he is talking about allegiance. That belief is anchored in Christ, like we sang this morning, but it produces a following of him. So he points out the fact. I think that's worth remembering. Would you say amen to that? That, that true belief is, is allegiance in that it's evident by how you see it in life. And we could just talk about fruit and all the rest of that this morning. See, there's belief on one level. You know, you might believe, maybe you're like me, you believe that liver is good for you. Do you? I believe liver, because I know it is because my mother said that all the time. I believe that liver is good for me, but I want nothing to do with it. Anybody want to say amen to that? Yeah, okay. But then there's the kind of belief that says, I want it. I'm all in. That's saving belief. Belief is all in on his person. And Jesus then, okay, now that I've told you, even if you die, or if you have life, you'll never die, do you do believe this? That's the question from the very one who gives life. And many will say, and just about everybody that I read wanted to assert the fact that Martha's response has to be one of the best confessions in all of the Scriptures. There's other ones I'm sure that are great, but look at what, how she responds to him. Verse 27. And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe and I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and he who comes into the world. Can I say it this way? Can I read it this way? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, I believe that you are the Son of God, and I believe you're the one who is predicted to come into the world. The Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God is that term that is saying, I believe you are the same as God in nature, essence, and being. I believe you're God in flesh. I believe you're the Messiah, the sent one. I believe you're God in flesh, and I believe you're the one that all the Old Testament scriptures say there's a great prophet one day that's coming that is truly God's great prophet. And it's Jesus Christ. Man, what a confession. By the way, what's yours? And can I ask you this morning, have we heard your confession from that tank back there? 
where you follow Christ and his command by giving public confession, testimony to the fact that you believe in him with all that you're worth. That's a place where it's given. You might even think about the fact in some of us who are a little bit older. Somebody mentioned about the uh, senior saints a lunch today. Um, who qualifies? <laughs> Everybody older than me. And if you qualify for Social Security. If you don't qualify for Social Security, you don't come in there and you don't get chicken today, okay? Why don't you know that? But what does that have to do anything? I don't know. I don't remember. Her confession. Her confession. And you know, the older we get, it might be good to write that down so that our, our children and our children's children and our children's children's children one day could read, this is grandpa or great-grandma or great-grandpa's confession. This is what he says about what he believes about Jesus Christ. That'd be something to do if you've never done that. Now, notice next what takes place. After Mary's, uh, Martha's wonderful confession, we have now Jesus' compassion, and we'll see it toward Mary, okay? We're going to work our way up to verse 36. So we've seen his coming and his confession, and now we see his compassion. Verse 28, and when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and calling for you. Isn't that beautiful? By the way, when they had lunch in Mary and Martha's and Lazarus' home, Martha said what? Jesus, have Mary help me? What was Jesus, what was Mary doing? She's sitting, taking it in. I think it's interesting here that Martha says, oh, the teacher, the teacher is here. Jesus is here. It's also willing for us to consider the fact that, that she's telling Mary, she gets, goes and tells Mary that the teacher is here and calling for you. He's going to comfort her too. These people are dear to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him. And what did she do? She fell at his feet, saying to him, and here's the same words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's honest. She knows that he would have healed Lazarus, but... She doesn't say that standing there with her arms folded and tapping her foot. Amen? She says that at his feet in humility. That's a good way to ask God, help me understand this, in humility if you'd have been here. That's beautiful. There she is at his feet and saying, oh, oh Lord, if you'd have been here. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Now verse 33, when it says, saw her weeping and the Jews also who were weeping, it is a strong word. It could be translated almost a wailing. I mean, it's just, there's great emotion going on here. 
And Jesus is, is seeing that. He knows what he's going to do, obviously, right? But there's all of this grief, and he's hearing these people wailing in grief. And it says in our text, he was deeply moved. Or if your Bible says something like that, deeply moved, I want you to know it's a bad, weak translation of the word. How do I get that? Well, first of all, I get that from other places that word is used, like in Mark 2, uh, two times in 1.43 and 14.5, where the word is a, is a strong word with reference to scolding or a stern warning. In fact, I'm going to give you a word here that would better be a translation here, and I get that from Dr. King and so many others that I think nail the word better for us. And it would be the word... He was indignant. He was indignant. R.C. Sproul uses the word irate. The etymology of this word, the idea of this word, it literally means to snort like a horse. Now, if you watch a, uh, a, a Discovery or whatever with reference to wild horses out there in the wild and, and two, two uh, uh, stallions go to take on one another, you'll hear them snort because they're really bothered and something is really going to take place. I'm just pointing out to you, this is a, this is a strong world, word. A.T. Robertson translates this violent displeasure. The LXX, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrews, Hebrew text, in Daniel chapter 11, verse 30, the word is translated enraged. enraged. That's why R.C. does say, quote, a more accurate translation would be to say he was irate. Now, how do you get that? I don't think he was irate against the people over there grieving. But I would assert to you this morning he was upset. Even In fact, I, I, from our first hour this morning, and we were talking about, not talking about, Dave was teaching us about the attribute of God's wrath. And one of the ways that was expressed as God's, the burning of his anger when it is dispensed. And, and there's an expression here, I believe, that he is expressing his, his, his wrath toward what is taking place. And as always, R.C. can say it better than I can. So listen to his state, statement about this. Personally, I think that which caused the anger of the Son of God to boil up and overflow in his spirit was that he was in the presence of the ravaging destruction of the greatest enemy of mankind, death. This was his enemy. This was the foe that in only a few days he was going to confront head on in the thrones of the agony that he would experience on the cross, dying to conquer death. I think this is the, the kind of visceral reaction Jesus had when he encountered the sorrow that death, and, that death had provoked. Jesus entered into the affliction of his people so deeply that he was moved within himself at the travesty of death. And here is, his, here is his emotion 
Can I say his holy anger about what sin has done? And then it says, likewise, don't miss at the end of verse 33. And he was troubled. Troubled in his spirit. Paruso. Let me show you that in another context. Verse chapter 12. Just before the cross, the reality of his coming death. Look at verse 23, chapter 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered and saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now we're coming into that hour, right? Look down in verse 27. Now my soul has been troubled. It's a powerful word. He's experiencing indignation over what's going on around him. Next, Jesus asks in verse 34, okay, where where, where have you laid him? And they said, come and see. Verse 35. This is so much more than just a verse when you're trying to remember one to quote. It's the smallest in the Bible. I want you to note this in verse 35 when it says Jesus wept. It's a different word than the weeping back in verse 33. This word for wept is what happens to you when the Spirit moves your heart in singing truth or hearing truth and it brings it to bear upon your spirit and tears come down your face. That's the word here. This is a quiet grief that goes in your heart, oh my, and brings tears on your face. And he wept. Why would he weep? He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Because he is a sympathetic high priest who enters into the feelings of his people. And so when somebody says to you, listen, you don't know how I feel. You haven't lost your best friend. I lost my best friend. Don't need to know. Who knows? Jesus knows. He knows. He feels it to the greatest extent, does he not? For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things we are, yet without sin. He knows. Isaiah 53 is the one that should come to mind for us right now. Despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with what? Grief. Here's a grief. Here's a grief. He didn't need to come to this earth to learn anything, but he entered into human experience so that you and I would never be able to say he doesn't know how I feel. He truly does. So he wept. He wept. And the Jews said in verse 36, and we'll stop here this morning, the Jews said in verse 36, see how he loved him. And that was an obvious conclusion, yet they don't have the foggiest idea how he really loves you. And it will not be raising Lazarus from the dead because that love is not about seen with reference to Lazarus in itself. That, la- that love is going to be seen a few chapters later. 
in his own death and his own in his own resurrection. So let's remember Romans 5:8, but God demonstrated his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, what Christ died for us. There's love. John says it this way over and over in 1 John, doesn't it? You hear these things you think about 1 John. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our, for our sin. So it was obvious in his care for them and weeping for them, for Lazarus and the people around him, that he loved them. But the true demonstration of his love is yet to come. And the big event in the Gospel of John is not what we're going to see next week in Lazarus' resurrection, but come still anyhow. Amen? <laughs> because it's something. And, beloved, if there is a DVD library in heaven, I want to I see the expressions on people's faces as they saw Lazarus coming out of the tomb. What evidence of the omnipotent power of the Son to give life. This is our good news, that he came and he died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and he rose again according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures. And he said, because I live, you too shall live. So, do you believe this? I pray you do. I pray you do. Let's bow in prayer. Join me, please. Thank you that I may address you now, Father, as just that, our Father, our Heavenly Father, teaching his disciples to pray. He said, pray our Father who is in heaven. Thank you for the the gift of this life demonstrated and the gift of your son who is, who is life. And when we claim life in him, it's not merely that we're saying, well, the word says this, although that's enough. But the, the one who said these things, the one that is pointed to, there has never been, no, will never be anything like Jesus. We thank you so much for being able even to grieve with hope, to grieve with confidence, and to realize in this journey that we're in, this pilgrimage that we are passing through, oh, what you have in store for those who are yours. And perhaps someone today is saying, for the first time. Wow, I'm, I'm all in on this. I believe he is the one who is life. Bring that to bear upon their hearts. Father, may we hear of it. May we rejoice with them. And we thank you for uh, those of us who you have brought out of darkness into light. We rejoice in the wonder of our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray these things. And his people again would say, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together to that.